Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Covered podcast, the place where the wonderful and weird parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Drew. Say hi. Hello. Didn't talk over you that time. Very well done. Thank you. Definitely remembered. Thank you very much. (laughs) And uh, with with us filling in for Aaron this week uh, is, well, is the first time you've been on the podcast, is, is my wife, Paris. Paris, say hi. Hello. Hello. So this week we've got um, a very big bird from New Zealand that I'm going to be to- uh, talking about. We're going to be talking about who's named after what. And we've got some news coming out of Afghanistan, which is probably not great either. So uh, without further ado, let's jump into the news. It's the news! Right, so we're into the news, and uh, this week, well, Drew's going to start us off with, actually, what on earth are you talking about? Well, you'll find out, won't you? Yeah, I I probably should have asked you that before we started this segment. Anyway. Never mind. Let's get into it. (laughs) Let's get into the news. (laughs) So, Drew, take it away with your news article. I I will. Well, I had a quick follow-up just to the White-Tailed Seagull uh, article I spoke about many moons ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so 12 more have been released on the Isle of Wight. I should have written down what total that makes. Uh, but it's 12 more to that's what was already good. there. So a few. Uh, so that's pretty good. I think there's about 20 or so before that. So yeah, this this project is picking up more steam. So great news. Um, and I'll try to remember to keep you all updated on white-tailed eagles going on and going forward. But otherwise... Before we actually oh, start, Drew, I was mm. reading up on that as well because of the... Uh... The mention of one being around this way in uh, around our area in Devon. Yes, um, up on Exmoor, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, uh, reading up she, on she. their their distribution now in the UK, mm. and because of the distances that they can fly, there is nowhere in the UK where hypothetically you couldn't see a white-tailed sea eagle now. So I'm I'm waiting for the day when I see one land outside that window, and uh, I can. Well, it may be coming sooner than we expect. <laughs> I'd, I'd love in, a, to... in a decade or so, they, they could be everywhere. And that would be fantastic. All for the good. Yeah. All for the good. Let's see them in red um, numbers. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Loads. Stealing sandwiches from children. Yep. That's what I want to see. Anyway, my, uh, my actual news article this week uh, is all about some salacious sea snakes slutting up to scuba divers. Uh, <laughs> so this article is from CNN. Uh, and it's titled Frisky Venomous Sea Snakes Are Confusing Divers for Their Mates. And the article starts by saying that highly venomous olive sea snakes may attack scuba divers as part of a misplaced courtship behavior. And I think they missed a trick here by not titling this article Missnaken Identity. Oh! So, oh! <laughs> um, so uh, divers are, are regularly reporting sea snake, sea snake interactions involving... Uh, chasing and biting, and the reasons for which were previously unclear. She didn't understand why these snakes were get all up in their grill. A study has been published on this and suggests that male sea snakes may think divers are either potential rivals or mates, while female snakes think that they are possibly hiding places, possibly <laughs> from these, these think, frantic males. That, 
They think that the divers are hiding places. Yes. I will, okay. at the end of this, I will explain <laughs> uh, sort of like how, <laughs> how this is all happening. <laughs> so the study uses data collected by uh, Tim Lynch, uh, who described encounters with olive sea snakes uh, in the Great Barrier Reef, Australia, from 1994 to 1995. In 74 of 158 encounters, sea snakes approached Lynch, and this was more common in the May-August mating season. So during this pe uh, period, male sea snakes look for females and they start courting them as soon as they see them. This largely involves flicking the female's body with his tongue, hello, uh, to check the chemicals on her skin to make sure if she is the right species and sex. Uh, then he aligns his body with hers, maybe calling around her to hold her in place so he can position himself for copulation. It's getting very, very saucy now. Mm -hmm. uh, but the females are, uh, often aren't interested, so they swim away. Male sea snakes were more likely to approach divers, particularly during mating seasons, according to the study. And in some cases, they would flick their tongue at the diver. And in 13 cases, they charged at the diver. Uh, when a male sea snake charged the diver, it came straight after an unsuccessful chase of a female uh, or following an interaction with a rival male. So this is a little bit like the octopuses we were talking about uh, last yeah. week. They're, yeah. they're just getting frustrated. They're having a, having a little tantrum. Um, <laughs> charges by females were observed after they had been chased by males or had interacted with the diver uh, before losing sight of them. So the study says these patterns suggest that the attacks by sea snakes on humans result from mistaken identity during sexual interactions. So how is this all happening, you might ask, because like, how are these male snakes, well, any of the snakes, confusing a human for a, a female snake? Uh, and also how the females getting confused too. Well, previously research says that the sea snakes do find it difficult to identify shapes underwater uh, because they don't rely on sight at all. Their eyesight underwater isn't actually that good. They rely mostly on scent. Um, and it clearly works for them, but maybe not in this one scenario. So clearly these divers smell like sexy snakes. So <laughs> you scuba guys need to stop leading these snakes on. Um, and the article finishes by saying that if a sea snake comes for you looking for a good time, the worst thing you can do is panic. So keep calm. Snake isn't attacking. It just thinks you're a female snake. Once he finds out that isn't the case, uh, he'll just go off and look for love elsewhere. But yeah, that's my that's my nice little frisky snake icicle. Mm. I saw a video um, pop up on Facebook. I can't remember what page it came up on, but uh, oh. it was it showed a, either a paddleboard or a surfer out at sea somewhere. Uh, I think off uh, somewhere off Australia. I actually had the sound off, so I didn't hear any of the sound. All I saw was a sea snake swimming along the surface. Comes up to him. Has a good sniff of him, goes around his board, sort of like really goes up to the side of his leg, and then does exactly that, yeah. just disappears afterwards. So I'm guessing it's uh, yeah. a lot more common. Than well, people... yeah. So I assume he didn't panic, which is no, he sat the problem. there and filmed the whole thing. The looks of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They don't. They're not out for blood. Well, no. for something else. And it's, it's uh, probably, it's probably one of the. You can't provide the... that. It's probably better that you uh, you don't panic as well. If if you know how yeah. venomous sea snakes are, they're um some of the most lethal venoms of any snake on the planet. So, uh, yes. yeah, probably best not yep. to panic because if you do panic and get bitten, it's, well, you're not getting out of the water. So, <laughs> yeah, in a cheery way. Yeah. Well, there's a little fun, fun, sexy snake article. Oh, I did, sorry, completely unrelated. Well, it's another reptile, I suppose, but I did, I did just spot it pretty much just before we started recording. 
Uh, it's very distressing. Komodo dragons have just gone from vulnerable to endangered on the IUCN. Oh. So uh, that's, that's that's less good. That's not good at all. Maybe I should have started with that yeah, before I got onto the sexy snakes. Probably should have uh, started with that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, we'll go on from sexy snakes. I can't say sea snakes at all. Let's try that again. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go on from sexy snake. No, can't say it. <laughs> from sea snakes this is all getting sexy times with scuba divers to, yeah. <laughs> to some slightly sad news. All the S's today um, from uh, from Kabul Zoo in, uh, in Afghanistan with, uh, with Paris. So uh, take it away with this fun, depressing article. That's always going to be good. Yeah. So, yeah, it's um, history in the making, as we've all heard, from Afghanistan having some horrible things going on. Um, and just one of the things coming out there at the moment is Taliban fighter points gun a miserable bear at Kabul Zoo amid treatment concerns. So in the picture, there's a group of fighters looking down on this bear in his enclosure, pointing a weapon at him. Um, yeah, it's just really sad that, you know, the zoo's having to go through all of this, as well as all the people. It's, it's mm-hmm. been confirmed that the, the bear hasn't been shot or shot at. Um, none of the animals apparently have. But it, it's still sad that, you know, half the animals, how, how they might be treated, um, especially with what happened before um, in the 1990s. There was a report that a, a bear um, had a grenade thrown in with him um, after he attacked uh, another militant, which left him blind. And, it, yeah, it's, it's just they're, they're all kind of what's going to happen with the animals the charities could be able to rally round they can't run you know they, they can't get away not that many of the people can either unfortunately it's claimed that the zoo, the zoo staff continue to service the animals but it's not known if the animals will continue to be maintained by the taliban after um you know they're they being fed and cared for are they being looked after mm. it's just whether or not you know the, the zoo is going to be maintained by the taliban taking over things so yeah it's just uh, are the soldiers liaising with the zoo staff are they treating the animals well it's um it's all, it's all a bit of a, a sad thing really so yeah what do you guys think about that well I'm, I'm gonna say based on the fact that all three of us ha- have or are still zookeepers it's mm. got to be the worst conditions that you could possibly be in as a zookeeper i know a lot of us complain you know that we have a, a bad day every yeah it puts a lot of my problems to light <laughs> yeah when you know when you ask a member of the public to sort of you know not litter or or, or don't poke a uh, tap the window or something although if they turned around with an ak-47 i think i'd probably let them just get away with it and i'd back back off well, but... you, you need to tell them though to stop tapping the glass with that ak-47 thing. well that's true yeah they might damage it but yeah. yeah it fair play to any of those zookeepers that are still there doing that job because oh yeah that has got to be the worst conditions possible. And they've not been through this just once. They've been through this multiple times as well. It always surprises me when there are still zoos in places like this, because a lot of the time you, you genuinely think a lot, you know, that they would have become targets for uh, airstrikes and, and different bits and pieces like that. So it's, um, it was apparently, uh, according from what I, I, I'm reading as well, it was apparently a favourite want for soldiers to basically go and leave the front line and um, see bears being beaten and other animals struck with sticks, snowballs and stones. So uh, I'm assuming that was probably the Taliban during the 80s and the 90s from that. But uh, yeah, it, this it, it's sad in that these aren't zoos in the sense of what we, we expect in, in say, Europe uh, and America and, and, and Australia and places like that, where the animals come first. These are just 
pits with animals to stare at and entertainment centers yeah basically mm-hmm. it's it's the very very old outdated view of what a zoo is i'd say but yeah yeah i would still sort of give benefit of the doubt to uh the zookeepers at that zoo though because you shouldn't really get into that sort of job without that sort of compassion i know some people some people just do it because they think it's just a job yeah but if those zookeepers are genuine which i will give them the benefit of the doubt yeah this is the worst as you said the worst case scenario you could ever possibly imagine mm. and uh i mean i hope it gets better i don't well, know how it will but i hope but, it does yeah. I can't see it getting much better at the moment. In a weird way, yeah. you almost want to have other collections get in there, take those animals out of there and give them a better life and, and close the zoo down, which I know sounds horrible mm. because it, it loses people that connection to animals and it, it just doesn't help with uh, with trying to um, drive that sort of connection to animals uh, with, with the younger generation. But at this point, I'd say that the thought should be, you know, to get those animals out of there and, and get them safe because otherwise oh. they are just going to become targets, target shooting practice for some wayward Taliban fighter who just wants to go in there and, well, just be a sick bastard, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we've ended our news bit there on a, a bit of a downward note. Probably, but, um, possibly the bleakest one. But I mean, to be yeah. honest, Af- Afghanistan was always going to sort of come up. Eventually, uh, you, yeah. You know, you're talking about nature and conservation and stuff is you know war-torn countries are they will always come up in in this sort of topic i mean i don't even know very much about uh afghanistan's sort of ecology what the it's, it's uh, one of those sort of wild species it's one of those places i imagine it's was, an important area yeah it's one of those places that uh like iraq and iran just gets overlooked and everyone thinks it's just desert mm-hmm but they've yeah. got upland meadow areas and sort of alpine regions that are home to some unique and, you know, just uh, sort of completely unique wildflowers and, and, and things like that. I think you get things like Syrian brown bears, obviously, over Syria. Mm, I think yes. even originally you'd have had camels, Bactrian camels, probably coming that far because it is very far into Asia by that point. And if you go back far, mm. you've probably found them there. Yeah, I can't think of much else that would be existing there these days. No, that's a shame. Yeah. Um, Operation Arku for Nauzad was a um, rescue centre in Afghanistan for um, all sorts of animals from dogs, cats, you name it. And luckily in the last few hours on the 1st of September, they managed to get all of the animals um, and staff out of Afghanistan in the last few hours that the airport was secured by British troops. After hours of of sorting this out all the way through from it being um, when they first invaded, um, and they, they've just about managed to get them all out. Um, they managed to get all the vets, the vet nurses, uh, there were animal keepers there as well, and they managed to get them all out. And it's fantastic news. So I just oh, there to we go. Put that in there. All right. Well, we yeah, can actually well, yeah, end that. We can end that relatively sad article. By, there we go uh, on some nice by, news. By with some good some good news. Yeah. So we'll. Um, We'll go now from our from our news articles into uh, our, this week's feature feature, where I'm going to, shall we say, wax lyrical again about my favourite place on the planet and an animal from there. We're going to New Zealand again, and it's a giant flightless parrot. So let's get into that. It's the creature feature. Okay, so this week's creature feature, like I say, is me talking about my 
favorite place uh, on on the planet and was very lucky enough to go to and at paris you've i dragged you along on our honeymoon to uh, to new zealand so you've you've seen this place i have seen it and uh, got eaten by the majority of winged <laughs> insects on the north and the south island there you go you've got a lovely collection of insect bites from Every possible insect that we could have found. Um, but this this week, we're not talking about an insect. Um, the last New Zealand animal we were talking about was the witter. This week, we're talking about a giant flightless parrot called the kakapo. I'm assuming both of you have heard of a kakapo. Yep. Yep. Good. Yep. Paris, you've heard. I mean, yes. you've, you've heard me talking about it multiple times. Yep. In fact, if we'd have if we'd have had enough time and. Uh, been able to get all sort of permits and everything i would have loved to us to to have gone and volunteered on one of these islands working with kakapo um because they are just a fantastic animal but sadly we didn't see one on our trip there so the kakapo what is it uh, its scientific name is uh, strigops uh hab habrotillus i am going to butcher that it, which translates as owl face with soft feathers and that will become very apparent as we go on to where those bits come into it, um, because they do have many of those features. Its Maori name uh, is night parrot, and that's where kakapo comes in. That's its Maori name. So uh, what's this bird look like? The best way I can describe it is imagine a budgie, a green budgie. Now scale that budgie up to the size of a Jack Russell and make sure that it's covered completely in green plumage with little bits of brown on it uh, an underside sort of a light tan color give it a flat facial disc very much like an owl hence where it gets the owl face bit from because it's got this flat facial disc that gives that sort of owl-like appearance not that they use it in the same way as an owl would for like a, a effectively picking up sound because these guys don't do that uh, anywhere near as much as an owl does it's got quite small wings for its size and it can't fly like most of the birds on new zealand it gave up flying a long time ago because why on earth would you bother if you've got no predators there to be able to eat you so uh, it's just not worth it so they basically lost their ability to fly they are quite heavy birds they can weigh anywhere between two to four kilos and the males tend to be bigger than the females um, so your average weight is probably around the three kilo mark, but four kilos for a big adult male. And their feathers are said to be very, very soft, hence where the soft feather bit comes in in their scientific name, uh, and said to have a sweet but musty smell. So they're uh, a very odd looking, but also very odd smelling parrot. Now, where on earth would you find these guys? Well, you find them in New Zealand, but you don't. In, in a weird way, because at one point you would have found them from the very tip of the North Island right the way to the very southern tip of the Southern Island. But this is going to change very, very uh, soon. I'll, I'll tell you that in a sec. But the habitats that you find these guys in are everything from tussock, uh, tussock grasslands on the South Island, which are essentially open grassy sort of meadow areas, scrublands, forests, even podocarp forests as well, uh, which are quite uh, common in New Zealand they're considered to essentially be just a habitat generalist if you uh, find a habitat there you'd have found a kakapo uh, at one point or another but unfortunately predators brought in by humans um, first off by the uh, the Maori coming there in the 1200s I believe uh, introducing uh, the Polynesian rat 
as well as pigs. That basically signaled the uh, the death knell for quite a few species of birds um, in New Zealand. Um, but the numbers were still there for, uh, solid for quite a while uh, until obviously uh, we turned up as well. We certainly didn't subtract from the numbers of predators. We introduced stoats, foxes, cats, dogs, weasels, all sorts of mammals that basically do a very good job of catching and eating birds. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're a four kilo parrot, you're not going to be able to uh, to compete against some of these things because they'll just eat your eggs. And in fact, one of the main defense uh, mechanisms that they have is in fact to sit still, which is not really a defense mechanism if you, uh, if you think about it. If you think of any animal that you might have encountered in the Northern Hemisphere or pretty much anywhere else on the planet other than New Zealand, if you go near it uh, and it sees you as a predator, it's probably going to run off in, in, you know, uh, in the opposite direction or fly off in the opposite direction. A lot of the species of birds in New Zealand went in the, the opposite direction of going, no, if I sit still, nothing will notice me. That doesn't work when a stoat's coming near you or a fox because it then just goes, oh, that's great, and just picks you up and walks off with you. So, so presumably, presumably it did work against it, their own natural yes. predators, which were airborne, right? Yes, so things like the Haast eagle, which would have been airborne, yeah. um, and one or two other smaller eagles. But if you're on the ground, yeah, you're not going to be seen. There were no ground-based predators to speak of, so uh, they would have been safe until we basically turned up. So um, they were actually present for quite a while, in, in all parts of New Zealand uh, up until the 1930s where they went extinct on the North Island and then 1985 uh, on the South Island is when the last one was recorded uh, which is really sad because that's that's not that long ago that they were really quite present. Mm. The last few of them were basically relocated to islands out off the coast of New Zealand. In fact, they're found on two islands currently. That's where the population pretty much resides. Codfish Island and Anchor Island. Uh, Little Barrier Island is also being trialled as a sort of third test site. And there are definitely plans to have fenced off areas on the mainland to reintroduce them. New Zealand is very, very big into its conservation and wanting to, to basically make the place predator free as best as they possibly can. But the sad thing is they are critically endangered. And there is only 201 individuals. So it's a really low population on two islands. Mm. Um, and if, uh, if we've learned anything from uh, island populations over the years, islands are very good at being wiped out in sort of localized events. So hopefully that doesn't ever happen to those islands. Um, you know, some sort of natural disaster taking them out because we don't want to see these, these uh, parrots disappear. They are absolutely fantastic. Um, so like I say, they are generalists in their habitat, and that means they eat lots and lots of different things. Uh, these guys will eat all sorts of different fruits, seeds, nuts, leaves, pretty much whatever they come across. They are vegetarian. And just like most other parrots, you know, they use their beak for cracking open nuts and seeds. One of the biggest plants that actually plays a part in Kakapo lives is the Rimu plant, which is a plant i'd never even heard of until i started looking into it kakapo and it will become more apparent later as well as to how much a part it actually plays in the kakapo's life they do also forage on alpine scree slopes uh, and where there have been sort of avalanches and, and areas that have basically been cleared 
uh, of trees and things like that, you'll find that these guys will go out and they'll snip up the younger plants that are coming through. Uh, and these are sometimes referred to as kakapo gardens, where they basically nibble the, the plants as they're coming through. And it sort of maintains it a little bit uh, for a while as being the sort of shortened um, area of plants. So uh, they're, to an extent, habitat engineers. Nowhere near as much as a beaver, but uh, they do at least do things like that. Mm. Now, this is where the remu fruit comes into play. They actually have an exceedingly irregular breeding cycle for any kind of bird they are a bird that basically relies on one or two other things that have nothing to do with them and i'll tell you about that in just a sec because this is a bird that doesn't do things normally compared to most other parrots in fact it's the only parrot that lacks and as we've talked about on other podcasts, uh, on our other po- uh, on this podcast before, we don't have other podcasts, uh, on this podcast before, lecking is something that's usually done by things like grouse and other uh, game birds where you have an area where you display. And in fact, they do a very, very similar thing. They will march to the top of a hill or to the top of a valley, find themselves a nice prominent place. This is the males that do this. They'll all go and find their own individual area and make what's called a bowl, which will be just a nice little scrape where the bird will sit and start booming. And they'll do that to uh, sort of echo out over a valley or over an area and let the females know that they're there. They're the biggest, they're the sexiest kakapo around and they should all come to them. And if that works, they will well, basically attract a female in. So it's very unusual in the sense that these guys create, uh, they basically lack. Now, when it comes to that renewed fruit, um, that plays a huge part in their reproduction because you can actually predict how well they're going to breed based on how much fruit is on the renew tree that particular year. Scientists have got it down to such a thing that they can basically put up a, um, a collection area underneath a renew tree, collect as much fruit that's falling off it, and be able to work out roughly on these islands of these 201 individuals how many of them are going to breed that year, whether it's going to be a good year, a bad year. And it's, it's an incredibly useful tool for them to be able to work that out because it's, it's quite foolproof in, in a lot of ways. But they weren't the first to have noticed that the Rimu fruit and the, uh, the Kakapo are sort of linked. The Maori noticed this. And in fact, they, uh, they essentially saw it as a, a way that the Kakapo were predicting uh, how good a year it was going to be. So they saw them as fortunate, uh, sort of uh, able to see the future. Um, so there's actually quite a bit of a sort of a deep link to the uh, the Maori when it comes to uh, kakapo and their sort of place in Maori society as well. They um, often saw the kakapo. I don't know how actually accurate this is. Supposedly the kakapo will drop fruit into mountain pools to uh, to store it. Now, I don't know how accurate that is and whether this plays into sort of folklore uh, of the Maori or not, but they saw that as a way of being able to copy the same thing and store fruit through the lean times in cold mountain pools and be able to do exactly that. So humans sort of copying from the, uh, the animal themselves. Now, they were also eaten by the Maori as well as a delicacy, which, you know, it's a large parrot weighing four kilos and uh, were apparently easily stunned uh, in the same way that you can um, uh, sort of stun a rabbit with your headlights of a car or a deer. 
you could do that with fire. So you'd walk into the uh, the bush with a, a lit torch and you could just have them sitting there staring at the fire and you just walk over and pick up the bird and kill it that way. So <laughs> not a great uh, defense mechanism either. Like say sitting there just waiting to be killed by these two-legged humans or two-legged mm-hmm. mammals. Um, so yeah, there, there, there's a bit of a, an odd sort of relationship with the uh, the Maori when it comes to uh, the kakapo because they were used for their feathers. Like I say, they've got very, very soft feathers. And the Maori sort of chiefs would have capes made out of kiwi feathers uh, and kakapo feathers. And one of these particular capes has over 11,000 feathers in it. Um, so that's more than a few birds that would be in these feathers. So they were essentially ceremonial ones, but still that's a lot of birds that would have been killed for them. Uh, but they also did keep them as pets. Um, in fact, you could uh, you could often see people keep uh, keeping these as pets every now and again in the uh, in these Maori villages. And in fact, in the nineteenth century, George Grey, uh, who was um, a British, uh, well, doesn't actually say who he was in my uh, sort of looking into him. Basically, it sounds British. Well, yes, he sent a letter home saying that his pet kakapo that he had whilst living there was more dog than bird. And I've got to admit, if there was the option of having a kakapo as a pet, I'd totally have one because they just seem so amazing. But yeah, there, there's one final thing that I was going to mention about the kakapo as well and to do with its feathers. It's, an, it's a Maori saying to do with how soft and how insulating these capes were that were made from kakapo feathers is that uh, you have a kakapo cape and yet you still complain about the cold it's essentially what you'd say about someone who's never satisfied by anything. Um, you're wearing mm. essentially the warmest possible clothing you could be wearing, and yet you're still complaining. I think I can think of a few people that are like that, that would have a, a kakapo cape and still complain at the same time. Mm. But yeah, they're, um, they're an amazing bird. And like I say, it was very unlucky that we didn't get to go and see one or anything like that. We saw kia, kaka, kiwi. I think even kakarikis, but yeah, a huge variety of different parrots in that part of the world. But kakapo sadly is one that is still eluding me on, on my list of uh, birds to go and see in the wild. So uh, yeah. Any questions you two on the kakapo? Yeah, I have a question. Um, you said obviously they were native to mainland New Zealand and now they're only really found on the, the islands. Did you say they moved them to those islands? Were they not native to those islands at all? Uh, no, they were moved to those islands. I uh, I think they pretty much yeah. set them up there because, uh, well, those sort of last arc places that they could move them to and keep them safe effectively as they saw them. Yeah, so presumably there's no effects from the kakapo to the whatever native flora and fauna was on the island. No, no, these these islands are very much close to, to New Zealand itself. There's a, There's another great story, in fact, that came from in fact have you have you you you, i'm assuming you've seen last chance to see that documentary series it was stephen fry and mark coardine brilliant series there there is well there is one on the kakapo which i watched in Mm -hmm. part of my research for this um and they talk about the, the black robin in new zealand and that was a fantastic conservation success there were something like four individuals left and one breeding female out of that four and they moved them in the 1980s to the Chapman Islands, which are uh, quite a distance away from New Zealand, um, but they are still part of New Zealand. 
they took the entire population of four birds there and now they're in the region of about 150 160 birds it, it's something that the they've been doing in new zealand for a while now to basically protect their species they've done it with things like the giant wetters uh the tuatara as well they've been put onto these islands to basically keep them safe because the, the mainland is still highly populated by introduced species up and down both the north and the south island it's it's quite prevalent so yeah right. it's and the biggest threat one of the in fact one of the biggest threats to uh, to them and to things like kiwis as well as dogs domestic dogs play a huge part in decimating their numbers because people let them yeah. off the lead they go off and they find them sitting yeah. there in the burrows uh and then just well massacre them so uh yeah it's it's a yes. place that is well not i mean that happens here. yes that's true yeah at least our animals are somewhat evolved to work uh, to get away from things like that. They don't sit there and go, please eat me. So, yeah. No. And, and no. the one that's certainly worth mentioning uh, from that uh, documentary, and I think, I think we've even liked its Facebook page, is Sirocco, the, uh, the hand-reared kakapo that is the one that you tend to see in um, uh, pictures and things all the time, which uh, is a fantastic mm. ambassador for his species even if he is mounting the heads of people every now and again. Well, <laughs> let, him, let him be. Let him be. He's been through. Exactly. He's, been through He's happy. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, oh. there we go. We'll go from our uh, large flightless bird of New Zealand uh, and we'll go into our pop culture corner. Oh, look, it's culture corner. Okay. So we're now into this week's pop culture corner. and uh, We've done a bit of a dive into the amount of people who have got animals named after them. Um, there are quite a few people that have had animals named after them by different scientists all around the world. Some have done it as a bit of a joke. Some of them uh, have done it in sort of honorary mentions of them. Uh, and you will, you'll see that there is basically pages and pages of these, uh, these people who have been named for all sorts of different things. Um, so I'll start us off with a list of just some of the musicians that have had animals named after them. So I don't know whether you two are familiar with Earl Scruggs. No, no. 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 I don't. So dueling banjos mean anything to you? A little bit, like <laughs> vaguely. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Earl Scruggs is basically he is a famous. I, I put this in because I'm I'm a, I quite like his his banjo playing, as it were. He is a massive like pioneer of banjo playing techniques i know that sounds really weird to have started off with this one but he has had a species of banjo catfish named after him which you know is just perfect nice, if you're a nice. banjo player name a banjo catfish after him which is brilliant uh ronnie james dio of dio fame the uh unfortunately no longer with us has had a spider named after him a lot of these are going to be spiders and uh and beetles that have been named after them. Uh, David Bowie, of course, or Bowie, uh, has had yep. a species of spider named after him, and it looks absolutely fantastic. The obvious pun on that being Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars. It's a fantastic looking spider. It's like a bright orange colour, like a really furry huntsman. Um, really, really cool. Ozzy Osbourne has a spider named after him, although I personally think that they should have gone down the route of like naming a bat after him would have been the obvious one. But, uh, you know... You might have bit the head off it. That joke's falling flat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
It's funny, okay? <laughs> Mick Jagger. It wasn't um, for the bat. <laughs> well, no, I'm sure it wasn't. Mick Jagger's got a trilobite named after him and a sea snail named after him as well, uh, which is kind of cool. Prince has a species of fly named after him. Uh, and this one gets its name because it was found eating a type of raspberry leaf. Raspberry beret is one of his songs. Oh, you're clearly speaking to absolute the wrong people. For... Anyway, I'm sure that I some of was... our listeners out there will get that. Uh, I thought that there was reference. some sort of link to raspberry leaf tea, which is used to bring on early induction of labour. But okay. I mean, Prince wasn't well known for his. No, his I was trying to techniques. think of the link there, but I couldn't quite. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Lady Gaga's got a wasp named after her. Shakira has another species of wasp named after her. Uh, oh. This is a parasitic species of wasp that oh. uh, actually causes the parasitized caterpillar to actually start jerking around and moving its abdomen. So right, it's, so it's, hit, it's, yeah. it's it's yeah. uh, its hips aren't lying basically. No, as it jumps around. No, in in horrible pain, maybe. I'm I'm fairly but certain, not, yeah. But it's, not uh, but truthful. It's screaming in pain. Beyonce has got a fly named after her, and this was by an Australian entomologist. Um, he's done this with uh, quite a few different species of flies. In fact, we should have asked Dr. Erica about uh, about this particular species. Would it would have been a good one? It's got a golden ring around its bum, so if you like it, put a ring on it. And I think that's where he went with that particular joke for it. So it's a, mm. I, I like a, I like a scientist who's got a uh, sense of humour, as cheesy as it might be. Johnny Cash. Well, the words, the words, you know, exactly. Crumbling. Exactly. If Eric Idle has taught us nothing, it's always look on the bright side of life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Johnny Cash has a spider named after him. It's black in colour, just like uh, Johnny Cash was described as the Man in Black. Uh, it's also found near a prison. Now, John oh, yeah. famously played uh, a live show in a prison. I don't know if it's the exact same prison that he played the, his show in, but it is found in an area near this particular prison, so that's why they've given it that name, which I think is pretty cool. Bono has a spider named after him as well. Uh, this particular one, particular one lives in the Joshua Tree National Park in America, and the obvious reference being that the Joshua Tree album, which was uh, U2's uh, oh. album. Is it also a tax dodger? It probably is, and it probably puts its album on your uh, on your phone, and you can't get rid of it no matter what you do. Yeah. So uh, I almost left that one out, apart from the fact that it was uh, it it was such a good uh, sort of link between the two, because I really can't stand that. I'm not a massive U2 fan at all. Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel have got trilobites named after them. Um, each of them, Daft Punk nice. have got a flatworm named after them. Uh, I'm just picturing that this flatworm wears a helmet or something, um, or you know, plays the synthesizer. Yep. John, John Lennon's got a spider, which I think is definitely missing a trick. He was a member of the Beatles, so why has he not got a beetle named after him? And the Beatles have got a polychaete worm named after them, not a beetle either. Oh. Which, you know, whoever did that, just <laughs> missing They're a trick there, I'm afraid. But um, that is just some of the uh, the musicians that have that have got things named after them. Drew, I believe you have got a list of politicians who have got stuff named after them. Yeah, so you you got. I mean, again, mainly Beatles, mainly Beatles, a few spiders. I mean, you know, most of most of the world is Beatle. Yeah. So they're all being discovered all the time. So you've got George Bush, uh, George W. Bush. Excuse me. He has a beetle named after him. A species of round fungus beetle northern america 
likes to roam into all... parts of the world and just sort of invade, I'm guessing. Probably, yeah, probably. <laughs> You've got Donald Rumsfeld. You thought I was going to say Trump. I wasn't. <laughs> but he's also got a, another Beatle. Dick Cheney, again, another Beatle. These are, these are horrendous ones because... They definitely don't care about wildlife, those three particular individuals. No, it's a slime mold beetle. So, oh, well. There we go. That's... Nice. Hitler. Hitler's got a beetle. And uh, that's, that's quite an interesting one. So it's a blind cave beetle. It's only found in Slovenia. And it was named by Oskar Scheibel uh, in dedication to Hitler, obviously, uh, who had recently become Chancellor of Germany at the time. So the beetle is of interest to collectors of Hitler memorabilia uh, oh. purely as a result of its name which is putting the actual beetle in danger of extinction. So That's ridiculous. So great, as if, you know, as if things weren't bad enough for it. After Nazi, World War II... Stop ruining the world, please. <laughs> yes, please, Nazis. Just, I mean, just stop also. Just go away. Know. Just stop. Go, just, yeah, like kill yourselves. But anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, so after, after World War II the renaming of the beetle was rejected by the ICZN uh, because at the time its name was originally published, it was in full accordance of the rules. So I guess say what you will about that. Well, it's to do with the fact that you're not allowed to use offensive language yeah. as a scientific name. And people took umbrage with it being, you know, a, offensive. He was, he was quite an offensive man. Yes. Technically doesn't break the rules of that because it's not someone swearing in the name it's you know it's not the fuck off beetle or something yes anyway move we'll move swiftly on from hitler <laughs> we've got che Guevara, who has a sponge named after him and also has uh, a harvestman as well um, Yay, oh, and a beetle and a beetle oh and a wasp he's got do a... they do they come on like a do you get them on a t-shirt you know i want them on a t-shirt uh, i think so yeah i think so <laughs> I think you can get that on a wall. I think so. Um, you've got... Oh, we're getting to the slightly better people now. Or I say slightly better. Much better. Uh, you've got <laughs> Nelson Mandela. He has a spider named after him. It's a South African spider as well, so I guess that's where the connection is. And it's only found... Or it's only known from... Oh, here we go. Here's a name. Isamangaliso uh, Wetland Park. And that's in KwaZulu-Natal. So... Yes, he's got a nice little spider. And he's got an extinct uh, woodpecker, also from South Africa as well. Yes, yeah, prehistoric species of extinct woodpecker. So that's pretty cool. And that's got his entire name in the uh, mm. in the scientific name. Australopithecus. Oh, yeah, Picus is uh, is woodpecker, isn't it? Nelson yeah. Ban- Mandela, yeah. Uh, we've got Barack Obama. He's got a spider as well. And he has a... Is that a finch? No, it's a fluke. Oh, a fluke. Is, uh, Sorry. Which is basically a flatworm-type creature. So I, I don't know who's named that after him, but uh, okay. some of these wouldn't be considered too flattering, but I'm sure that whoever was studying those particular fluke thought they were being flattering when they were doing that. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, that might be true as well. They might be trying to do it as a sort of a, ha-ha, got you. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get through the last of these. So yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy Carter's got a beetle as well. Bill Clinton also, you know, with the trend, got a beetle. Um, <laughs> probably... <laughs> the beetle's out. <laughs> Yeah, just hammering those beetles out. This beetle may or may not have had relations. Uh, <laughs> JFK, uh, he's got a fish, and Al Gore has got a frog and a beetle. That's the that's the politicians, oh, they, or at least at least a few of them. Yeah, they seem to get quite a few of the uh, the different things. Um, Paris, oh. you've got for us uh, a list of other 
other famous people, uh, celebrities and the like, that have also had some. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of Beatles as well again. Um, so Pope John Paul II had a Beatle named after him. I don't know this one, but um, Steph Colbert had a dive. Stephen Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert, a diving beetle and a wasp spider. A wasp and yeah, wasp and a spider. Wasp and a spider. Sorry, my bad. That's alright. Kate Winslet had a beetle named after her. Uh, Liv Tyler had a beetle named after her. I would have had big lips. Um, <laughs> Arnie had a beetle named after him. It has big biceps. Biceps, yeah. yeah. Uh, Matt Groening has a crustacean named after him because of, I'm assuming, crusty on The Simpsons. No, it's to do with... Um, I, I actually took great pleasure into looking into this one. Matt Groening's uh, included loads of different crustaceans on The Simpsons before. So Pinchy, uh, Homer's pet lobster... <laughs> Lisa has a pet hermit crab at one point, uh, and it also mentioned in the Wikipedia article for this as well, so I don't know how reliable that is, the particular episode where Selma and Patty are sitting there sucking dead hermit crabs out of the shells so that they could uh, keep the shells. Nice. <laughs> so so one, one scientist evidently saw that and went, I'm naming that crustacean after, after Matt Groening. Mm. Or oh, he's just like you and watches a lot of The Simpsons. Watches a lot of The Simpsons, yeah. Um, we've got Terry Pratchett had a spider named after him. Uh, and Sarah uh. Lee had a spider named after her. Um, John Cleese had a lemur. Oh, my word. Yes. He's a, he, really, he really likes lemurs. Yeah, he really yeah. does like lemurs. I think he's a... Is he a patron of Daryl so. Zoo? Yeah. Yeah, he done, does what, a lot of the lemur conservation. One of the few mammals so far. Yeah. And uh, he was also born in the same place I was, which is just a, a little slot uh-huh. in there. There you go. Uh, Michael Crichton had a dinosaur named after him. You would know uh-huh. that one. Crichtonosaurus, yeah. Yep. Harrison Ford had a spider. Edwin Snowden had a crustacean. Greta Thunberg has had a spider named after her as well. I thought it's it's really odd that Edward Snowden ended up getting one. It just someone adding that one in is a bit odd. I don't know. I mean, he's he has been quite influential. Yes, I suppose. Yeah, he's, he's you know he's broken a lot of news. <laughs> That's true, but you know, so that then brings us to the top tier, I think, of people who should be actually getting things. So, like I say, <laughs> Dick Cheney and Angelina Jolie probably don't give a damn whether they've got some something named after them. But I've got some scientists that have had things named after of them. Mm-hmm. Carl Sagan. The famous uh, astronomer has got an f- extinct species of frog named after him, which is pretty cool. Richard Dawkins has got a fish named after him. Um, yep. I think he's actually got one or two more. Um, I think like... I think it's a whole genus, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah. The Dawkinsia. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Hawking had a crustacean named after him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the pinnacle, shall we say, the, yep. the absolute highest point on the mountain you can get to the one that i think every scientist you know when they describe a new species they go yeah you know what let's just attach his name to it is david attenborough the absolute unit exactly (laughs) (laughs) i've got i could find over 12 species for him both extinct and living both plant and animal so he's got everything from a species of marsupial lion like thylacoleo he's got a dragonfly named after him he's got various different species of plants He's got an entire genus of plants named after him. A pitcher plant as well. Uh, he's got grasshoppers, an extinct species of fish. Beetles, spiders, an extinct species of echidna. Uh, he's also got crustaceans. And he's also got a plesiosaur species named after him as well, Attenborosaurus. Um, oh. 
which is uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, if you ask me, I think I think the basic thing to take away from all of this is a, if you're naming a species, name it after David Attenborough because I think he deserves it, and b, there are people on this list that don't deserve to have the animals named after them, and c, I'm really... yeah, we mean we mean you, Bono, you're right up there with Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> wow and see i'm wow. really jealous of these people if there are any scientists out there i'm just going to say it please name one after either the podcast or after me because it's, it's natural history covered di that's i mean that's quite a lot yeah i think that should be on there it's no worse than some species i don't know if that was good latin either probably not <laughs> probably not i mean these days it's not all latin anyway it's sort of uh it's bastardized latin and greek so uh, uh no, that brings that brings me to I have some honourable mentions, Gareth. That I oh. wanted to throw in because I found some really exciting ones. There is actually a whole again, it's Wikipedia, but there is a whole Wikipedia page on organisms named after J.R.R. Tolkien and either characters or creatures from his works, um, or even using the languages create, he created it as well. So some of them have their scientific names are using you Elvish, know, <laughs> Elvish, nice. Anya, or or Cinder. But yeah, we ha- I have I have a couple of honourable mentions. This uh, some that I really enjoyed. So there is Anthracosuchus barogus, which is <laughs> an extinct crocodile, presumably that someone found whilst delving too greedily and too deep. The the genus name Anthracosuchus uh, actually means coal crocodile as well. So it was found in a mine. That's why it got uh, that. That's why it got that name. So that's really cool. That's, um, that's top notch naming. That yeah that yeah. There is Breviceps bagensi. Uh, which is, it's also, its common name is also Bilbo's rain frog, which Brilliant. I absolutely love. <laughs> so nice. Uh, it's endemic to South Africa. Um, and it's, I looked up some pictures of it. It's adorable and grumpy looking. <laughs> uh, Does it disappear uh, every now and again? Maybe. And then there's a, a an entire genus of spiny Southern African lizards. They have the name Smell. Smell. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Uh, the giant girdled lizard which is sometimes called the sun gazer uh its latin name is smaug giganteus but yeah there's a whole genus of, of lizards uh that have his but yeah there's uh like i said there's an entire wikipedia article if you're if you're keen on talking if you're keen on animals and natural history i mean there's there's a load of honorable mentions in there have a, have a route through they're really cool hmm. there's actually one that i completely forgot and has just mm. come to me now masiacosaurus nofleri Oh, yes. Mark Knopfler. Yeah. Yeah. The dinosaur that was named after Mark Knopfler because they were listening to Dire Straits whilst digging it up in Madagascar, <laughs> which uh, that's definitely one that deserves to be in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, like I say, I think we've we've established that uh, we should have a species named after the podcast. I think that's, uh, that's a definite. Um, any mm. scientists listening out there, please get on that. We genuinely mean that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, well, we'll jump from this. Um, into our emails. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Okay, so we're now into our emails, and we've got, well, one email this week uh, that we're going to cover because uh, it's quite an in-depth one. In fact, it's so in-depth, it comes in two parts, and next week we're going to do the other part. So, uh, yeah, Drew, if you'd like to do the honours and read us the email out. Yeah, so this is a question that we had in from Jess. It's been a while since we've tackled a Jess question. So the question was, which natural history or wildlife TV personalities, explorers, scientists or authors, etc. did you love as a child and who do you admire or look up to today? Bonus points if there's a woman in there other than Mary Anning. 
<laughs> I think that's unfair to Mary Anning personally because she's pretty cool. But, yeah, but she uh, she is the sort of the one you go to if if generally. Uh, if yeah. yeah. Paris, as our, as our guest this week, uh, do you want to uh, take us out with uh, who inspired you? Well, I'm going to leave um, the obvious Attenborough to um, these two guys because they're definitely more knowledgeable about him on on that level. Um, but going on a slightly different tangent, um, I have to admit that Star Trek was what got me into loving animals. Um, it was the the odd sort of prime directive of do no harm and try to conserve what's there. Oh. Um, and, and watching that kind of exploration and thinking, you know, humankind can go forward um, in a civilised and educated and in a world where we just want to better ourselves. It's not about money. It's not about you know, who has the biggest house or who can do the best this. It's it's about helping and supporting each other and bringing that, you know, forward for the next generation. Mainly the the, the Star Trek Captain Picard, of course, uh, Patrick Stewart. Oh, he's the best one. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, yeah, so mm. that, that kind of, from a very young age, got me into that. And I, I kind of saw people a lot of the time as, as Q, I'm going to be honest, the kind of interfering, <laughs> busybodies, meddling and making things worse. But yeah, I, I guess... I kind of feel a lot of times I'm, I was born into the wrong generation because of that. Um, but yeah, that, that's what inspired me to sort of go after animals and, and sort of make want to be a better better for the, the world that we live in. Um, and I, I sort of do that. I, I don't know if it's been mentioned, I'm a veterinary nurse. Um, so just, just to give that as a, as a different one. These guys are, you know, zookeepers. I've, I've done zookeeping. It, it's, a, it's a different kind of job. It makes a different kind of person. But yeah, I, I diverged into veterinary nursing because I found myself enjoying the, the medical side of it a bit more. Yeah, but that, uh, there you go. Hmm. You want to see the insides of animals <laughs> yeah. as well as their outsides. <laughs> yes, but make sure they stayed on the insides and, and in a healthy fashion, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get them out, have a look, and then put them back in. Yeah, yeah, in the right order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Much prefer them on the inside and not having to see them. That's, yeah, if you ooh. see them on the outside, it's generally, you know, medium rare with some mayonnaise. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. My or, a or that, you know, a great, a great old prolapse. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. Mm, yummy. So who inspired um, you, Drew? Well, as a kid, I loved the Really Wild Show, um, mm-hmm. which was, of course, Chris Packham, Michaela Strachan, and Terry Nutkins. Yeah, that's what I loved watching. And I also, and this will preface sort of the question that we're going to answer next week. Of course, loved watching Steve Irwin as well. His enthusiasm um, and passion, obviously, so so infectious. And uh, again, I'm not obviously the only one uh, because he's still very, very popular today and still big influence today, I, I reckon, as well. Um, but those were the ones that I really looked up to as a kid. Nowadays, I mean, obviously, Steve's no longer with us and nor is Terry, Terry Nutkins actually either. But yeah, nowadays, I, I mean, I, I really I really like the guys who go out with their activism, basically, and fight for what's right, pretty much fight for nature and fight for conservation. So there are people in the past uh, who, I mean... I, I really really look up to and the struggles that they went through I suppose the most obvious ones would be the three women that started the Royal Society of Protection of Birds here in the UK which is one of the oldest conservation charities so that was started 130 years ago by Emily Williamson, Etta Lemon and Eliza Phillips and this was back in a time when you couldn't protest as a woman so they had to pay men to do it but you know They've they founded a, a they founded a charity and organisation, and I admire that certainly. Mm. And 
sort of on TV, obviously, as Paris mentioned, David Attenborough, uh, I don't, it, it would leave a massive hole when he finally goes. Not that I want to, you know, preface not, talking about David Attenborough by immediately talking about his death. Yeah, but, no, we're not, we're not acknowledging that he will not. No, he, he won't die. He, he is, he is immortal, but he will go forever. But yeah, obviously he's, it, it really bothers me if I watch like, um, if I watch one of his documentaries and it's been dubbed by someone else and yeah. I know it's been dubbed by someone, you can tell it's been dubbed. I don't know why anyone would dub over him. Actually, I, to interject on that, I do feel sorry yeah. for the Americans who have oh well, yeah, Edinburgh documentaries dubbed by other people. Yes, and I, it, you're missing out on sacrilege it, on on what is this wisdom an and knowledge. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it just in himself. I mean, he is he is the master. But yeah, obviously he's incredibly uh, inspiring, and uh, I, I, I will always watch always watch his stuff. Hmm. Well, for me, I'm I'm gonna go with the same sort of out of left field answer that that you came up with, Paris, because my start. Oh, have I gone really vanilla? No, no, no. You've gone. You got. I, I, I would say I'm just I'm a, again. With... Vanilla is a great favor. Second favorite <laughs> <flavor> in the world. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm defending well, myself. I, the only reason I'm gonna say this is um, Jurassic Park was a huge. <laughs> part of my young life growing up i was obsessed mm. with it i wanted to be alan grant and as such uh i've always right uh, how always... how are you getting on with that he's married a dinosaur have i <laughs> <laughs> i didn't say it you said it okay um so um no essentially uh, sam neil is uh, is a massive Sort of, I, I'm a massive fan of Sam Neill's work and everything. Um, mm -hmm. He did a really good documentary series on, it, on New Zealand wildlife, so that technically counts, yep. you know, in the sense that he is a wildlife presenter. Uh, but for me, it's Attenborough. Obviously, is is the big, you know, the big sort of driving force. So I've always said David Attenborough and um, Sam Neill are the the two people who've driven me in the direction that I have initially, and then I'm I'm massively big cheerleader for Mary Anning because the more you find out about her and the more you find out about the the discoveries she made and how they were just thrown aside a lot of the time uh, by the establishment at the time you you just you know you end up basically becoming more and more enamored for what she did so she was a uh, she's quite a a big thing and I would say Steve Owen as well yeah he played he played a big part especially at the time when I was watching his stuff, I was living in Australia. There we go. We've got it in there this week. The, uh, oh, yeah. I think yeah, we missed we got... it last week. Yeah, we did. we did. <laughs> but it, it, it was really, you know, it was seeing Australian animals and then seeing them up close. And i got to admit, I did end up going out looking for for things to uh, to find. Didn't, thankfully, manage any to find any crocodiles because they didn't live where we live. But... Um, I certainly did go looking for lots of different things in the process of doing that and, and also learning an awful lot about um, different Australian animals. But the, uh, the other one that I thought is definitely worth bringing up is uh, Nick Baker. He's, oh, uh, yes. He's a fantastic oh, yes. wildlife presenter. And I got the chance to meet him a couple of years back now. Uh, and he did a fantastic series about weird animals. And I've always been one for looking for the weirdest animal possible. So he's he's played a uh, an important part in in sort of that. I suppose let's also throw in there Steve Backshaw because you know he's he's done a lot for getting yes. kids involved 
uh, with uh, with nature as well. So, yes, yeah. I th- I think I think actually Steve Baxter will. No, actually, no. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to scrap that. Never mind. Don't worry. I'm, I'm not going to say that. Okay. I was, I was going to say that he could well be the the David Attenborough's replacement, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Well, say, I'm gonna, if I'm not going to talk about it. No, no. If you were to pick anyone, I'd say it's a yeah. valid point. I'd say Steve Backshaw is probably uh, a good contender, but no one will ever really live up to David Attenborough. I think, in uh, in spirit, if anything. Yeah, so. I should also mention as well. Currently, I watch Spring Watch or whichever season it is uh, in the UK. We have well, Spring Watch, Summer Watch, Autumn Watch, Winter Watch. Um, they're filmed sort of live, although they do have um, recorded bits too. Uh, the presenters on there uh, also includes Yolo Williams. Uh, he's great as well. Yes, um, yeah. Going to name yeah, Spr- to meet him as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I would like to meet him. Uh, but yeah, those guys are also really good. And, you know, anyone, basically anyone who's sort of fighting the good fight. Mm. Massive, massive inspiration. There. And particularly, <laughs> when we would, obviously you're talking about Mary Anning. I mentioned, obviously, the, the three women founders of the RSPB. People who are sort of challenging those, I suppose, conservation particularly in the uk has been quite an old gentleman's club for a long mm-hmm. time so as many women as we can get into conservation that's great and obviously we also want to bring up that diversity too we want to get different cultures into it as well because we can all learn from each other this is a subject i do want to touch on a bit in another episode i think but yeah bring up that that diversity we we need more people from different backgrounds to share their ideas we, we're yeah. learning so much from indigenous people so let's you know have them on our tv as well please yeah Mm, Yeah. absolutely yeah well there we go that's that's part one of our um response to that particular email it's there's i think we could all go on for for ages about different people who've all played an inspiring part in uh in our sort of passion for the natural world and everything and keeping it going and and, uh, it's yeah it's a really really important thing so yeah um that uh, pretty much brings us to the end of that email oh and before we um we sort of disappear for the end of this week as well i was going to give a shout out for our fortunately the only person who put any comment on our uh, fly photography competition for this week which is really sad i was hoping people would get loads of fly photos and, and everything but uh well you know it is what it is so a big shout out to uh, to dr steve trim uh, who took a lovely photo of an orange dung fly. Hey. <laughs> so, uh, thank you, Steve. Um, that was a, a lovely photo of Thanks, an orange Steve. fly. Um, and, you know, feel free to anyone, send in fly photos, or just get out there and take some photos. Because, uh, like I say, if, if Dr. Erica uh, the other week has taught us anything, um, we should all be looking at flies. And, you know, I've spent a lot more time this week um, getting up close to all sorts of different species of flies, just, just to see them up close. Um, you've been you've been smearing feces no, everywhere, been, haven't you? Just to try and get flies to come into every bunch of flowers possible because they are just crawling with flies at the moment. You've not bought me a single one. Fly or flower? Either. I'll bring you both. <laughs> There's a fly in here. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Romance isn't dead. <laughs> and I'll I'll get you one with multiple nipples on its eyes. Lovely. There we go. Mm. So that pretty much uh, brings us to the point where uh, <laughs> I get to say thank you again for joining us this week. And remember, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, um, you can by either uh, email at thenathistorycupboard at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and on Facebook where you can certainly send us fly pictures. It's, it's fine. Uh, I was about to say yeah. send us any pictures, but... Send us any pictures, articles, mm. whatever. Mm. Not, not, not just any pictures, natural history yeah. pictures. Yes. 
we don't want pictures of you. You, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> you can get in contact your flies. on either yeah. Twitter and Facebook, um, and our Twitter handle is at NH Cupboard. You can find us by looking for the Natural History Cupboard podcast. Uh, and if you've liked what you've heard, um, remember you can leave us a review, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell the flies, tell the tell anyone that we're here. You know, to come and listen. So all that leaves me to do is uh, say a big thank you to my co-hosts. A uh, big thank you to you, Paris, for... I know it's been a long journey coming here today. Yep, absolutely. Yep, cool. So a big thank you. You're welcome. That's okay, and we we'll hope to have you back on the podcast at some point. Absolutely. Even though you're there in the background most of the time. Yep. Yep. Uh, and a big thank you to you as well, Drew, for being here, as always. You're welcome. That is good. And uh, a big thank you to you at home for listening. And of course, we will see you here next time in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Bye. No more mutants. No more mutants.